from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today's guest is Dimitri Muganis. Dimitri, I have to say, among all our guests, he's got to have one of the most fascinating lives I have ever encountered. I've known Dimitri for about 15 years. We've been friends for quite a while. If you look around, on what are the, these are the labels you see to describe Dimitri, right? You know, activist, anarchist, community organizer, poet, and musician. Uh, the face for many people of Ibogaine treatment. He's a harm reduction worker. He's a drug policy reform activist. He's a former heroin and cocaine addict. Uh, you know, spiritual healer in the Bwiti tradition. What can I say, Dimitri? Thanks so much for coming on Psychoactive. Uh, thank you. I think when you and I uh, first met, it must have been about 15 years ago, you know, and I've been intrigued by Ibogaine since the 1990s. And then I meet you and you're this charming guy and you're explaining to me what you're up to and you're doing and how it worked for you and all this sort of stuff. For those of our listeners who don't know, there are many people who've been addicted to heroin and other drugs who've just found Ibogaine like a miraculous cure for them. And then I remember you were speaking at the 2007 Drug Policy Alliance biennial down in New Orleans. You'd given this talk that had blown people away, and I put you up on the closing plenary, and you blew people away again. So with Ibogaine, which I realize, you know, you move beyond in many ways, but just tell me about your encounter with Ibogaine and why this plays such a pivotal role in your life for so many years. Sure. When we met, I was probably a few years off of heroin, and I don't like to use the word clean because it connotes that, you know, that I was dirty. But I began, I guess I'll just start at, at sort of the beginning of the end of my relationship with cocaine and heroin. I was a 20-year IV drug user. And what started as exploration, fun, and also a way to anesthetize my pain took over my life. And so I was really sort of towards 
the end of my rope. I went from being an activist and an artist and a musician to living in my parents' basement back in Detroit. I moved back from New York and doing about $200 worth of heroin and cocaine a day. I was on the methadone program as well at the same time. And I was just waking up every day and wanting to kill myself. I was uh, parking cars. I was a valet and I was hustling in various different ways to make that 200 bucks. But um, I'd known about Ibogaine through the work of activists, the work of Dana Beale, actually, uh, the mad plathetizer, the yippie pot activist who will not shut up about Ibogaine. And so I'm back in Detroit in my parents' basement. My common-law wife had died pregnant. My world was getting smaller and smaller, and I saw no way out. And I reached out actually to Dana, and uh, he hooked me up with a few people, and I found myself in Holland, just outside of Amsterdam. My family cobbled every dime they could get together. They were going through some financial issues at the time. And I got there, and I worked with uh, Sarah Glatt in her farmhouse uh, outside of Holland with five kids running around. So I went from the streets of Detroit to, like, you know, fucking windmills, you know. But I took it. It was an incredibly difficult experience. Ibogaine comes from Iboga. The second layer of its root bark produces this like psychedelic sawdust. You got to like eat spoonfuls, sometimes 15, 20, 30 spoonfuls of sawdust that tastes like battery acid, basically. It's the most bitter, bitter stuff in the world. It was incredibly difficult. It was three days. There was tons of nausea, tons of vomiting, an incredible cathartic visual experience um, where I saw my past, I saw things that were done to me, things I did to other people. And there was no moment where I just saw heroin is done. But three days later, I came out of it with no desire to use. And I had no desire to use the entire time that I was under that very difficult experience. And from then, I haven't had a desire to use heroin or cocaine or use problematically. I haven't used problematically in going on 20 years uh, next year. Now, I got to say, I thought that's the way it works with everybody. And I found out something very different. I I should also say this, not only did you see my past, and this is the weird shit, Ethan, and there's going to be some weird shit. Mm -hmm. I saw my future. I, I actually saw that, for instance, I'll give you an example, that I was going to be on This American Life talking about Ibogaine. In the fucking but you didn't, for, you, you didn't actually foresee being on this no. psychoactive with Ethan Edelman? That was not part of it? No, no that was a, those were later DMT experiences, just sitting around, see, just sitting okay. around in my apartment smoking it. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the whole time I was burning to bring this to people. I wanted for folks that didn't have the kind of access that I had, and my family weren't rich at all. It took them a lot to get me there. But for folks that didn't have you know, a couple thousand bucks to have this experience, folks who couldn't leave because maybe they're undocumented or maybe they couldn't leave because of a record or, you know, they had three kids or whatever it was. I was burning with the desire to bring that to people and bring awareness. Wow. Can you just explain to our listeners, what is Ibogaine? Ibogaine comes from Iboga. And Iboga is a plant that grows in central West Africa, primarily Gabon. That has been used for thousands of years, first by pygmy people and then by Bantu people who migrated into the rainforest, the equatorial rainforest of Gabon. And it's been used at like a central sacrament, much like peyote or ayahuasca is used in those places. The spiritual technology religion that grew up around it is called Bwiti. Bwiti is an ancestral religion, an animist religion. Bwiti became your practice 15, 20 years ago, right, Dimitri, which you've used to help people heal when they're struggling. Just say a little more about that. Sure. I mean, look, I'm a Greek boy from Detroit (laughs) that found his way to Gabon. I think I was the first Ibogaine provider ever to be initiated. I was coming back to the source of my healing, and I would walk into a village And I would tell the elder, I was healed. Aboga saved my life. And she would look at me and sort of like cast her hand through the whole village. Like, yeah, it saved us all, (laughs) you know? So there was this recognition. We were in the same space. We had gone through this difficult process and it had changed our life. What I saw there was the performing arts as healing arts around dance and music, where 
multi-generational people would gather and in a very sophisticated and thoughtful way administer this drug that every member of the community took from the baby to the old people. There was African music, which is trance music. There was dancing, there was healing, and everyone had a job, whether it was building the fire, administering the medicine, leading the ceremony, cooking the food, shaking a rattle, dancing, singing. So it was this mutual cooperation and participation. And I realize saying all this, the view that it is cultural appropriation, but on a very personal level, it was a fucking mind blow. And this is after I was detox and I was administering this stuff in sort of a secular, sort of as an act of radical service. But suddenly I had this idea that all these elements that have been so important to me, music and song and, and coming together could be a part of the detox. And that was a journey. I went back to Gabon six or seven times and was initiated in other deeper um, levels of Bwiti. I got to say, I'm a very bad student, but I'm really grateful for my teachers and my family there. I ultimately saw that I could draw on my own belief system and could incorporate aspects of what I learned there, but I couldn't ever truly be a part of that as a, as a Greek boy from Detroit. So I am in incredible gratitude to the Bwiti for teaching me so much. It's still a part of my life. The way that it was brought into the United States or at least made aware to all kinds of people was through its anti-addictive properties, which was first discovered by my teacher and our dear friend, the late Howard Lotsoff, who as a 19-year-old college student who had a morphine habit, consumed it in sort of a early 60s, Lower East Side drug scene and realized that he no longer was physically dependent on opiates. It eliminates or mitigates withdrawal in most people who use opiates, heroin, Oxycontin, etc. Ibogaine is a hydrochloride, just to be crude, as coca leaf is to cocaine, right? So it's this white powder that can be put in a small capsule. And you lose some of the properties, but it's a little bit more immediate, or a lot more immediate, and it doesn't last as long. The reason it's preferred in detox is like someone detoxing from heroin cannot really eat that much iboga, or it's very difficult. You might throw it up before you get to the point where it's beneficial. It's used in the West for detox, but I have to say that in terms of like small doses, what they call the hunter's dose is amazing. Great for hanging out, great for dancing, great for sex. And also for people who aren't addicted, if they want to have an experience, a boga is incredible. You talk about microdosing? Yeah, microdosing. This whole thing with microdosing kind of makes me laugh. They always say, you don't want to feel it. Like, what the fuck? I don't want to feel it. Like, <laughs> I want to feel my drugs. But yeah, microdosing. And that's been used traditionally for thousands of years. They call it a hunter's dose because you can go sit in the woods and just you know, wait for the possum to come by or, or, or the porcupine. So all this time that you're doing these Ibogaine sessions, I mean, just explain. So what's it like? I haven't done a detox in, in many years. You know, I've done some group stuff that wasn't around detox. I used to, you know, work in Washington Square Park or Union Square, and I'd have people meet me. We'd do an assessment to see if they are healthy enough because there are cardio complications that can happen with people whose hearts aren't ready for it. There might be medical reasons not to do it. There might be interactions with other drugs they're on. So it's a very high threshold compared to all other psychedelics, not only in that it's that there could be a medical uh, event, but also you need help standing up, walking to the bathroom, sitting down. You're very deep. It's a very, very heavy experience. People get really freaked out about it. Done in a medically supportive, not medicalized, but medically supportive setting, it can be fairly safe. So what would happen is someone would come in about 10 to 12 hours without their opiates. So they're at the very beginning of withdrawal. And the really interesting thing to those of us who are opiate users or people who had a dependency on them was that you would take a small amount, sort of a test dose, and you would give it to someone who's just starting to feel withdrawal just to see how it would work with them. And within an hour, they're not feeling the withdrawal and they're not tripping. Now, there's a bunch of different ways of administering it, but I'll just tell you the old school way of doing it. 
After they would go through that bit and they're not in withdrawal, we would begin by doing what we would call a flood dose, a series of um, capsules over the course of an hour. And that experience lasts anywhere from eight to 12 hours. And it may be accompanied by intense vomiting, but not vomiting from withdrawal. And most people who have gone through it can tell the difference once you've asked them, were you in withdrawal? The answer is no. They were vomiting because like ayahuasca and peyote, there is a nausea. Your body's rejecting it. That could go on for eight to 12 hours. Now, if you weren't detoxing, that would be sort of the end of your experience. And you would go into this period, which they call the gray day, which would be anywhere from another 12 to 48 hours, where you're just sort of laying around, sort of waiting to process the experience, but also to get your body back. So for the person who's coming in for detox, you are asked to take more because your withdrawal will start to come back. So over the course of several days, you're giving booster doses, and it might take three to four to five days for someone to come out of the experience completely. Holding that space is the most intense experience that I've ever experienced. And I did it hundreds and hundreds of times. You have to be in there while people are suffering, while people are processing, while people are vomiting, while people might want to start to use again or questioning why they use again. It is an incredibly sacred space. And the gift of Ibogaine, I believe, but the gift of all psychedelics is that bit is incredibly inefficient that we have to spend that much time with somebody. But that's where all the magic happens. That's where what we might call healing happens because we get to honor somebody. So it's, it's that place where I call it's the exactitude of the inefficiency of poetry that happens in those spaces. And that could take days and days. And that's just a matter of sitting with people and being with them and honoring them. How do you keep people safe in the midst of experiences like that? I got to say that my early year and a half year that I was doing it, it, it wasn't safe because I wasn't doing it with a medical professional in a supportive role. So, you know, monitoring the heart, you cannot go to sleep on this. You need to be with someone 24-7. So those early years were maybe a year and a half where I was doing it on my own or with other addicts or drug users was dangerous. And after an incident in Canada where, where someone almost died, I was thinking about stopping, but I didn't. And I never did it without medical professionals again. What we did was we blended the ceremony in with the medicine. So the doctors were dancing with us. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. 
And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. So the question I want to ask you, because you're experienced in a lot of other of the psychedelics as well, what is it that distinguishes Ibogaine from the others? I mean, people talk about LSD and, and psilocybin peyote as giving this kind of deep spiritual insight that can help transform your life. But is there something else going on with Ibogaine, you know, biochemically in the body that's causing people to lose their dependence on these substances? I, I can't tell you what's happening other than experiencing it myself and seeing it in hundreds of people. I think I did over 500 detoxes. And when you're saying detox, by the way, you're talking about sitting with somebody for oftentimes each detox might be two or three days of sitting with somebody, right? At least three days, three to four days. Yeah. Um, I spent, I spent years in hotel rooms cleaning up, <laughs> cleaning up vomit with folks and going through similar processes that I went through. Here's the thing. I can't tell you what it's doing. I can tell you what I've seen. I can tell you why it's different. Sure, you can take LSD or mushrooms and have a, what we call a spiritual, mystical experience that might give you some insight into your problematic behaviors. Ibogaine interrupts the physical dependency on opiates and opioids with significantly reduced withdrawal or without withdrawal at all. And, you know, there, there's plenty of scientists that will dispute that. But if you were to give a hardcore junkie like me a hit of acid, basically 12 hours later, I'd want to kill you because I would be tripping, begging for some dope. And that's not the experience with most people going through Ibogaine. There, it, there is a cessation of the dependency. You don't need the fucking hit in three or four days. Now, do people go back to it? Yes, the majority do. But what I saw personally, what happened with me was so transformative. I was using about $150 worth of heroin a day and on 100 milligrams of methadone. And four days later, I had a pocket full of money and I was on the outskirts of uh, Amsterdam and I didn't have a desire to use. Now, that's what happened with me. Again, I think that might be about 20% of the people. It doesn't happen with everybody. And I think that's where the big problem lies with Ibogaine advocates and with psychedelic advocates in general. Yeah, actually, let's just back up here a moment because your life is actually pretty interesting before all this stuff that happens with Ivy Game. And I was just reading up, but you're born in 62 in Detroit, like a kind of working class Greek second generation, whatever family, right? You know, you're, you're a kind of not so white, white guy in a mostly black city. You get involved in a band, what leisure class, I think it's called, that actually gets a fair amount of renown. And you're the front man for it, you know, making up poetry and singing on stages. And, and meanwhile, you're also doing heroin a lot of the time and you're actually being a fairly successful guy for quite a number of years right before things start to fall apart. Yeah, I don't know how successful we were. I think artistically we were very successful. But yeah, I was a creative person. I mean, you know, I came to New York as a young person and, you know, the habit grew and I grew. But, you know, that's the thing about especially opioids. I mean, there's a beautiful grace period and sometimes it could last for a very long time. But that grace period can be very beneficial. For me, it was a Faustian deal. 
it took a lot more in the end than it gave. But yeah, my life was pretty interesting. The thing is, I, I was playing nightclubs when I was 14 and 15 in the early punk days in, in Detroit and then came to the New York when I was like 19. I lived in the Chelsea Hotel and this whole sort of world of the Hotel Chelsea that had been going on for 100 years, I became involved in that and then politics and art and music on the Lower East Side. And, you know, for a while it was great. And I don't want to talk bad about heroin. It's like distasteful. It's like talking bad about your ex-wife. But I can't be that idealistic about it either. You know, if you're nodding out, you know, at like a, an important, let's say, meeting with a record company guy, it's not a good look, right? I mean, it's a good look until it's not. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, most of the harm um, from heroin is because of its illegality. But as we know from, you know, Oxycontin and other drugs, there's other stuff going on there, too, that has nothing to do with the illegality. The other thing is it's diminishing. There seems to be some sweet spot that you hit and then you can't get to where you were. And, and then it becomes this drag about this maintenance thing. And so when you were doing the methadone, were you getting that from a clinic or getting it on the streets? I was, I was getting it from the clinic. But you were still doing the heroin on top of the methadone. Yeah, it's totally possible. I mean, look, yeah. it gave me my wake up, you know, which was awesome. Here's the thing about the maintenance. Personally, and, I, and from my observation, I was still seeking an outside euphoria. So I could do enough heroin. I'd get high at night, really high. But then I was mixing in benzos and... I was seeking that sort of extreme euphoria in our world to say anything bad about these things is, is you know, sacrilege. No, no. I mean, it's, people got all sorts of views about methadone from the good, the bad. They like it for a while, this and that. I mean, the science is there that huge numbers of people have benefited by making the switch. Um, but we also know for a lot of people, it doesn't really work that well. The methadone clinic was right up the street from the, from the police academy. And we were clearly junkies. And it got to the point where I had psychosis. I would think I was being followed. I would stand by a window and look out for hours. I was, um, I, I mean, I did crazy shit. I mean, it, it's weird, though, if you think about it, right? Because, I mean, what we know, right, no matter what the intervention, right, whether it's going cold turkey or doing methadone or buprenorphine or ibogaine or psychedelics or falling in love or finding a job or, you know, drinking green tea. I mean, people have every different method for trying to finally put some kind of problematic relationship with drugs behind them. But it's also true that, you know, there's a kind of double-edged thing about the, almost the placebo effect of these things, that if you believe in the treatment, it's more likely to work. I was at a psychedelics conference a few weeks ago, and I saw Matt Johnson, you know, who's been a longtime psychedelics researcher at, um, at Johns Hopkins, and he just got the first chair in psychedelic studies. And we're chatting, and, and I was telling him, I was thinking about doing a show on uh, the placebo effect. And he said, Ethan, sometimes I think about psychedelics as placebos on steroids. Yeah. And I've seen that work in the Ibogaine space in particular because it has this thing, this miraculous alchemy that happens with some people. But also other things are happening that aren't emphasized. People might contact a family member that they haven't talked to in years and years. You know, They might go back to school. They might change the way they use drugs. They might just have a, a couple of days where they're just honored. I'm a big proponent of placebo. I think placebo is where it's at. I mean, you, know, you hear people talking about it. Well, that's just the placebo effect. And, you know, to me, that's like the most interesting shit is the way. What is that? That's the interesting shit. Right. And that goes to like this idea of creating space, a space in which you can explore problematic relationships. You can explore depression or, 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 or deep rumination. You can explore relationships and creating space and accelerating that placebo effect is to me what's the most interesting thing about all of this. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing all my life is creating space, particularly around people who use drugs. I've been a bartender. I've ran after hours clubs. I work in needle exchange and I hold space in a psychedelic set. So to me, the placebo stuff, that's a great idea. That's the most interesting thing to me. Well, you know, there's also something about your journey, too, that your life is in many respects committed to harm reduction. You've been deeply invested in the harm reduction space, yet at the same time, you've talked a lot about the powerful, important role that 12 steps and the 12 steps consciousness and meetings have played for you. And people oftentimes think that those two things are at odds, and there's certain elements of the philosophies that are odds, but by and large, there's a kind of common philosophy, right, around, around recognizing and cultivating and 
embracing the inherent dignity in every human being. For you, coming out of that Ibogaine thing in 2002, three, beginning to become somebody who's given sessions, were both these things well integrated for you, the whole 12-step thing and the harm reduction thing? Or was that a matter of time? To me, it was. But let me just tell you, let's say 1981. I'm injecting cocaine and heroin. I'm on the Lower East Side of New York. My life is spinning out of control. I'm still in the band, but I'm psychotic a lot of the time. And I'm at a point in my life where I'm not in very much communication with my family. I just lost another girlfriend, another job. I'm hustling. And I I go to the corner of Avenue A and First Street, which was a very different corner then. And that's where I would buy my syringes. You'd go there and there'd be, you know, men and women out there selling syringes. And this is at a time when we were losing a lot of our family members through AIDS, actually. And so I remember going down there to to buy one for a dollar or two dollars. And I see this little table set up there. And there's these mostly men, mostly queer men. And I get choked up when I talk about it. They were there giving out syringes, which was illegal to do at that time. They were passing out syringes and information about injection. And I walked up to the table and one of them gave it to me. I can remember his face. He was an older guy. And I said, how much? And he said, free. And then he said, we want you to be safe. Ethan, at that epoch, at that time, that to me, it was such a mind blow for me that someone would risk their freedom because they cared about me. The thing about Ibogaine to me, and the thing about that gesture, and the thing about 12 steps, I go back to the Christ story and the story of the leopard. The leopard was a social outcast, was contagious, was in danger and a shame. Christ stops and heals the leper. Now, is that a public health story about leprosy? To me, what it is, is that divinity loved the outcast. Divinity loved the untouchable. And so whether it's taking time to sit with somebody while they go through a detox or handing that that needle, that's about love. That's about communal love in action. And to me, there's nothing more powerful. That's where the placebo lies, right? And I was seen. And what happened in the Ibogaine space after a while, and then the other medicines I work with, psilocybin and MDMA, what we try to do is honor someone, just like we honor them at a 12-step meeting or honor them when they come into a harm reduction facility. Hopefully, this is what we do. It's, I think, in some ways, to me, it's the most important thing. Of course, we don't want people to become sick or overdose. Of course, we don't. But that act is so revolutionary. You know, I tell you, Dimitri, sometimes when I hear you talking about this stuff, you remind me of, of when I think about some of the most talented body workers I know, you know, the ones who are studying a half dozen, a dozen different modalities and then integrating it all together. And the way you talk about helping people heal seems that same sort of thing. You know, you're bringing from 12 steps, you're bringing from harm reduction, you're bringing from Wheatie, you're bringing from Ibogaine, you're bringing from other psychedelics, you're bringing from a sense of community. It's all about helping people and understand that people each person's got their own journey and that what worked for you may not work for others. I mean, is that a, a, a fair description of, of how you do what you do now and think about it? First of all, when people come to me, and I, I've been working primarily with MDMA and psilocybin and sound, by the way, which we can get to. Mm-hmm. When they come to me, like, yeah, I've been doing this. I've been doing this almost 20 years, right? And so I know a few things, but what I'm listening for is that wisdom that brought them to me in the first place. And that's what I'm following. And the idea is, as someone who's played in nightclubs, in bands for years, someone who's worked in the harm reduction space, and then somebody who is a trained ritualist, what I'm looking for is how we can co-create a container, what I call radical hospitality, just that we're there for you. And we're going to hold you and follow you unless you start to you know, get into a discursive place or a self-harming place. We're going to hold you and honor your sacred individuality. Because 
It's a big fucking deal. It's a big deal when you come to take a journey. And that's how we look for it. We're marking the day. It's going to be different for Ethan today because we're marking it. And we're, we're there to show up holy. And with all the skill, the thing that's guiding us is the ethos, which is self-love and acceptance. It's really about improvisation. You can have a formula, but if somebody, you know, we had somebody the other day, brilliant guy, he talked for eight hours straight. Now, I could tell him to let go, to, you know, go to your breath, but after a while, that's what needs to happen. So, you know, Juan and I just followed him. We followed him with the music. We followed him with our heart. We listened because that's what needed to happen. So it's got to be an improvisational quality to it. And that's where all the training and the thousands and thousands of hours with people come into play because then you can shift and you're not so attached to dogma or a template. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids' podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. You know, there's one other moment in your life, right, 10 years ago, where you get set up and the DEA busts you. And, you know, you go through a couple years of hell. Did it change in ways what you do, how you think about what you do? Did it change it? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get busted again. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing it in Jamaica, man. It's, and in Costa Rica, there's that, right. you know. I mean, yeah, I found this quote from you uh, where you say, you know, they, the, the cops, they, they, they took away my magic powder, so I thought they were my enemy. But now I realize we were dancing together. <laughs> Even the arrest was part of my initiation. It was a blessing. Pretty generous statement, but I guess you still believe that? I, I do. I, you know, that affected me in a lot of ways. First of all, like when you read it on like, you know, a blurb, like, you know, if you read it on Wikipedia or something, it makes it seem like not a big deal. It, it, you know, for those that have been through it, and I've been arrested several times before, but I was never facing anything real, you know? I mean, I might've spent a week bouncing around or 10 days bouncing around New York City system, which is not pleasant, but I never had that sort of existential threat, just the sort of Damocles just hanging over me for two years. What it did for me is because I became so identified with Ibogaine. I became the Ibogaine poster boy. And, you know, the Buddha says that all identity is pain. And it became painful for me. And my life was totally consumed. It was one, you know, what usually happens, one cop gets a bug up their ass. And I'll just say this, that, that what I learned is that they took my magic powder away, right? And I was just there without a boga. And who was I? What was my purpose? And I had this opportunity that um, Carolina Lopez, who was running New York Harm Reduction Educators at the time, and Brian Murphy was a therapist there, and still like, you know, an amazing therapist, amazing psychedelic and harm reduction therapist. They invited me to come in and just sort of hang out, you know. So I would do that. And then they, they offered me this job. And I sort of joined the team initially I didn't even know what my fucking job was. It was like, I don't know, shaman at large or something. I, I never identified as a fucking shaman, but it was kind of like, just go and do like weird shit with people, right? And what ended up happening is Brian had this little meditation group where he would shake a rattle and people would go and meditate. And, and some of them were uh, pharmacologically challenged. So the meditation would be deep, <laughs> basically on the nod. And I'm like, well, let me bring another rattle. And we brought another rattle and I brought another rattle. I'm like, well, this guy plays drums. And what happened, it became a weekly ritual for 10 years at Nairi, where every Thursday at 11.30, we would gather with drums and incense and sage and rattles and, and an altar that was constantly changing and being built by the participants who came in there. And we would spend time drumming and singing and then talking. But what I learned from the Buiti and what I learned from 12 Steps is that everybody was participating. Everybody was contributing either by singing, telling a story, talking about themselves, dancing. And some of these things turned into these incredible spiritual parties. And from that, we began to form and co-create with the community this holistic space that we didn't have any money for. We didn't have a mandate. Management never told us, go ahead and create a holistic space. But eventually, just through, I would say, spirit, we started doing full body acupuncture massage, uh, that weekly ritual. Brian and I would do these shamanistic interventions one-on-ones, which were just amazing sometimes. And we started bringing gongs and singing bowls and Tai Chi. And we've co-created with the community this incredible healing space in the middle of all the other great things that Nairi does, which is, you know, case management and needle exchange and a safe place for drug users and sex workers, where we just see people as human beings that are coming in with spirit. And all of that came because the DEA arrested me and stopped me from doing that. That community during my trial, to me, it was the thing that sustained me. And without that community, and I, and I, I don't mean just my coworkers, I mean the people the drug users and, and, and the people who are living in the homeless shelter, the people that, you know, I became very close with. Without them, I, I don't know where I would have been. Yeah. I've got to ask you, you know, you mentioned the music. Explain more about this healing role of sound. You know, Lou Reed said my life was saved by rock and roll, right? And that's true for me. Music has always been healing for me. It's always been a refuge for me. But vibration... And the immersion in vibration, in sound, can deepen any experience, particularly what I discovered and others have discovered is, is the psychedelic experience. So when you come in to a session or ceremony with me, and the stuff we're doing in Jamaica, it's mushrooms, but in some other locations I've done the combination of mushrooms and MDMA. Coming into that space, the idea is that you 
would get comfortable, put on the eye mask, and allow these vibrations to center you. And much like meditation, if you get in a discursive space, if you get in the space of a mind wandering, you bring yourself back to the sound. And allowing that sound to deepen the journey. The only thing I'm interested in, Ethan, really interested, is space. Another childhood hero of mine said, space is the place. That's Sun Ra. As a disciple of Sun Ra, I embrace that. And the idea is whether it is the space in an after-hours club or a ceremony at a harm reduction center in East Harlem or a 12-step space, the idea is you're creating room around yourself, room to be with others, and then space around the quote-unquote problem or the issue. What psychedelics deliver most consistently is that space in order to give one perspective and maybe increase curiosity. And sound is an important part of that. So this thing I'm reading about that you're starting up now with some colleagues, the Cardea Institute, which looks like your big new venture coming up. Is that basically what it's all about, the stuff you're talking about now, combining these uh, you know, programs outside the U.S. using uh, psilocybin or MDMA or maybe even Ibogaine more together with sound, with creating space? Is that the essence of it? First of all, we're not using Ibogaine. <laughs> uh, not yet, anyways. Um, I've uh, teamed up with Ross Ellenhorn, who's a therapist and, and sociologist, because we share a similar idea around improvisation. As a therapist, he recognizes the most important thing is to be attuned, to be improvisational. So we share that. We share that idea. We know people are hurting, but sometimes the labels and the diagnoses are harmful. And so the idea is how much curiosity can we create? How much improvisation can happen between the space holder and the participant? So we've teamed up with Ross. And then for me, for a guy who's been like in the underground, who barely graduated from high school, to be involved in this project is kind of like a fucking miracle. And the idea is that we're going to have a space in Jamaica uh, where we'll be doing retreats and also offering ketamine using the same ethos with live music for each person. And not only offering it to people paying, you know, the price where, you know, there's, there's no sliding scale, there's free and there's whatever the price is. And we're going to be teaming up with uh, New York Harm Reduction Educators um, uh, in the holistic department to offer these services to that population. I mean, I'm, I'm so encouraged by this explosion of interest and excitement about psychedelics and therapy. And I realize, you know, you've written some powerful stuff saying, let's not take this too far. Let's not get carried away by our own rhetoric. Let's understand the risks here. But I also see ways in which the popularization of this is kind of educating tens of millions of people and opening up a greater understanding. And some of that, I think, may well redound to the benefit of people who keep doing it traditionally outside the medical system with practitioners and therapists who are not licensed, but who are highly talented and very focused on helping people. Maybe I'm just being optimistic. I, I, think, it's, I think it's possible, but we have to recognize that the tendency for capital is, is to consume and to grow. And so we have to recognize that what's really encouraging about Oregon to me is that once we decriminalize it or take away those penalties, some of the efforts of the 60s to sort of radicalize the use of psychedelics in a group space, I think we could do that really deliberately. And to use psychedelics as an organizing tool of consciousness raising, you know, consciousness about how we treat each other, class consciousness, I think that's really exciting. Yeah. Hey, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, look, you know, people say the dose is the poison, right? And the drug set in setting are pivotal to how we experience drugs. And I think maybe many of us are overly optimistic that psychedelics can have this sort of revolutionary effect in terms of opening up people to what we need to do to save the planet and to turn politics in the right direction. Yet, as I think you've written about, there are all sorts of ways in which pernicious groups and the state have used drugs, including psychedelic ones, for you know, evil purposes 
space as well. So I, I've loved this conversation. It's a little like sitting in my living room and having the same conversation, which hopefully we'll be doing before long, you yeah, know, and maybe man. with some of the people you mentioned on, on our conversation here. So I just want to I want to thank you very, very much. I, I want to wish you all the best on, on the next journeys of your life as you get going with this institute. I think I think your commitment and your passion and your your lovable way of communicating this stuff and your courageousness and sense of adventure, you know, have been have really played an inspiring role in both the broader harm reduction and drug policy reform worlds and beyond. So for all of that, I thank you. Thanks, Ethan. I, I love you. <laughs> I do. And I and and thank you for all your work and and for standing by me when I when I really needed it. So thank you. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Abhivit Baryosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beattie. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Next week... We'll be talking about vaping and e-cigarettes with Matt Cully, an activist and entrepreneur in the world of vaping. It's good to remember that this is not just a nicotine product. The owners, the business owners themselves, view this as a life-saving product. They feel like it saved their lives, and they feel like it's saving their customers' lives. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.